Good morning, Exchange Church. It's good to be with you today. For those of you that don't know me, I'm Ben. My name is Ben, and uh, I'm filling in for for Todd as he's somewhere else. Uh, So it's my privilege to get to open the Word of God with us. So can you join me with prayer as we get going? Dear Heavenly Father, we give you praise and glory. And as we just sang, there comes a day when... We will be lifted up and we will see your immense glory and our hearts will be filled with joy and wonder. And in the meantime, Lord, we gather together today to taste a little bit of that wonderful glory to come. I pray now as we open up your word that your word will fill our minds and our hearts with love for you. And may you be glorified in our time as we Wrestle with your word and the message that you've recorded for us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. So for us to start today, I'd like to start with a little quiz game. In a moment, I'm going to read out some statements, some quotes. And all you have to do is tell me whether the quote came from one of the best-known pastors in America who has a very large church, or if the quote came from a fortune cookie. All the quotes were taken from this pastor's official Twitter feed over two weeks in November of 2015, and all the fortune cookie quotes came from actual store-bought fortune cookies. And I just have to mention that I did steal this quiz from a Christian pastor and blogger named Tim Challies. So, um, <clears throat> so to help us out, I've got the little answers right here. So, all right, let's give this a go. First question. Happiness is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to cope with it. Happiness is not the absence of conflict, but the ability to cope with it. What do you think? Twitter or fortune cookie? Fortune cookie. Second one, you're not responsible for other people's happiness. You're responsible for your own happiness. Twitter. Take time to make a difference. Think about how you can make somebody else's life better. Twitter. Avoid focusing on the negative aspects of the past. Fortune cookie. You can just as easily talk yourself out of a dream as you can talk yourself into it. Twitter. When you can't naturally feel upbeat, it can sometimes help to act as if you did. Fortune cookie. 
To affirm is to make firm. To affirm is to make firm. Fortune cookie. True greatness is not how bright you shine, but how bright you make others shine. Twitter. Somebody needs your encouragement. Somebody needs to know that you believe in them. Twitter. The best thing in life aren't things. Fortune cookie. You will produce what you continually see. Sorry. You will produce what you're continually seeing in your mind. Twitter. Judge each day not by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds you plant. Fortune cookie. So how'd you go? Pretty tricky, wasn't it? This quiz was meant to be a bit of a laugh, um, but it is also a bit troubling. Here is one of the biggest names and voices in the broad Christian church, influencing millions and millions of people every week. And yet, in an online forum in which, presumably, this pastor was trying to deepen his followers' faith in Christ, we can't tell the difference between his uplifting tweets and the little biscuit that came with his $10 takeaway Chinese meal. And unfortunately, this is also something that we're finding all over the place. The same kind of popular feel-good, scratch-behind-the-ear kind of spirituality and theology is characteristic of many who are teaching and preaching in the church today. But it's not biblical Christianity. Our world is full of all sorts of competing philosophies, ideas, theologies, and marketing spins, of which this pop fairy, sorry, this pop floss, fairy floss spirituality is just one strand. And with the rise of instant global communication methods like the 24 hours news cycle, social media, ebooks, you know, global brands, all these competing ideas are at our fingertips all the time. In the past, a Christian spiritual formation mainly came through the prayer and singing and, and teaching at their local church with their brothers and sisters in congregation. But today, for most of us, our spiritual formation comes quite often from the books that we read, the musics and sermons that we listen to, the Facebook posts, memes, and etc. that we peruse on the internet. We have a huge spiritual buffet of mat- spiritual material before us. And like in most band marie's some of the options are good for us and others are not so good. Some are biblical and some are not. At the moment, we are seeing many, many, many Christians slowly and subtly absorb all the various unbiblical ideas floating around us. Practically on a weekly basis, I hear of some high-profile influential Christian who has succumbed to the pressures of the culture around us and begun to alter subtly or drastically sometimes the Christian message. And since communication is now instant and global, the ability to spread these alterations is, well, viral. So this leaves us with a couple of questions. First, how do we avoid drifting into unbiblical theologies and ideas when they are so prevalent and so subtle? And how should we also respond to those Christians who are teaching unbiblical ideas or respond to those who are being influenced by those same teachers? So, to answer those questions, we're going to look at the little tiny book of Jude found right at the end of our Bibles. 
And fortunately for us, God anticipated these very questions all the way from ages past and inspired Jude to point us true. In fact, Jude says as much in verses 17 and 18 of this book. In fact, the whole book of Jude is an answer to our question, all one page of it. These questions are so important to Jude and so critical to the churches of his day that he confesses in verse 3 of his letter that he had been planning on writing a completely different letter to this to these churches, but felt compelled, strongly compelled, to write the letter he did. You see, these early churches were apparently struggling with the same issues of teachers who were drifting away or running outright away from what Jesus, the apostles, and the early church leaders had been teaching all the way from the beginning. And they were beginning to smuggle in these false teachings into their churches. One note before we jump into the text of Jude. Jude's letter has some kind of odd material in it, at least odd to those of us in the 21st century. But keep in mind as we read Jude that some of this material that's a bit strange, uh, most of it comes from from the Old Testament, but some of it comes from some other sources, some other texts that Jude had available to him. Um, Although they sound a bit strange, he's just using these stories as illustrations to make his point. So don't get too caught up in some of the, well, either bizarre or strangeness of the book, uh, but let it just sort of push us towards understanding what Jude is really getting on about. All right, so let's read Jude. We'll read Jude starting in verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality And deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walk in the way of Cain, and abandon themselves for the sake of gain in Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts, As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, 
fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. Wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority, before all time and now and forever. Amen. Jude, as we've just read, goes into great pains to answer our two questions. What should we do with Christian teachers who are drifting away from the truth, or worse, outright changing it? And secondly, how do we keep from going adrift ourselves? And what's Jude's answer? His answer is that we are to contend for the faith against those who pervert the gospel by knowing and practicing biblical Christianity, mercifully seeking to correct Christians caught in error, and keeping our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus and the glory of eternity. So let's explore each of these ideas in turn. Jude starts his letter by appealing to his readers to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, verse 3. The word contend here carries that same sense of the do-or-die struggle of a final footy match, or the eight months of grueling, fierce combat over the peninsula of Gallipoli. And who does Jude say that we must contend with? It is against Christians who have drifted from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is against Christians who pervert the grace of our God, verse 4, and who follow their own ungodly passions, verse 18. See, a good portion of Jude's letter, all of the verses between 5 and 19, is devoted to identifying and describing in big picture terms who false teachers are and what their motivations are. And that's what all those little stories that we read were meant to convey was this period of showing rebellion and you know, blasphemy and all the kind of wickedness of false teaching. So to summarize Jude's argument in that regard, false teachers are people who quietly weasel their way into positions of influence and authority within the church, and then begin to corrupt the faith from inside. These people are motivated by all the usual suspects, the desire to legitimize sexual activity outside of marriage, greed for material 
and financial wealth and gain and power to assert their own will over and against other people and even God. It is against these people, primarily, that Jude calls us to contend against. In verses 20 and 21, Jude focuses his attention back on his readers and lovingly encourages them to contend for the faith by knowing and practicing biblical Christianity. The phrase Jude actually uses is, keep yourselves in the love of God, verse 21. But how are we to do that? Fortunately, again, Jude tells us by giving us three activities in verses 20 and 21. The first activity is that we are to build ourselves up in our most holy faith. (coughs) Like a bricky, we are to keep laying brick upon brick upon brick to build up a shining pillar of faith. In verse 3, Jude says that the foundations have been delivered once for all to the church. The foundation is the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and includes all the teachings and doctrines that were developed by the early church and by the apostles to communicate the truth about Jesus' death and resurrection and about its power to save sinners and restore them ultimately to God's family. It is upon this foundation that we are to build our own faith. And don't miss the precious words that he has here, too. It is our most holy faith. This faith is most holy because it comes from our holy God himself. Our faith is not merely a human construction built on the beach sand of random church dogma. It is a very solid, unshakable gift from the magnificent and holy God of the universe. The second activity of keeping ourselves in the love of God is that we are to pray in the Holy Spirit. The prayer that Jude has in mind is just our simple, normal, everyday prayers. If we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, like Jude exhorts us to, we must maintain a relationship with the Father, with the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And our prayer is how we cultivate and sustain that love relationship. For those who are truly seeking after Jesus and keeping in the love of God, the only way to pray is in the Holy Spirit. That's sort of one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. The only other way to pray is to pray purely in our human flesh, but we don't really consider that prayer at all. It's mostly just babbling or hollow words or self-talk or some other form of random communication, but it's not prayer. And in case you hadn't noticed, Pastor Todd has written a nice little piece in this month's newsletter about the normal everyday prayer. And it really complements Jude's thrust here in Jude Jude here. So if you haven't read it, take a look. There's more copies on the back if you want them. Shameless plug for the newsletter. The third activity of keeping ourselves in the love of God is to wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Do you remember December as a kid? Do you remember that agonizing wait for classes to finally be over and for Christmas to finally arrive? Maybe you, like me, had an advent calendar hung on the wall or sitting on the table. And each day you would 
run downstairs or run upstairs or run around the corner or whatever and pop open the next window in the advent calendar or pop out the chalky and desperately hope that that calendar was reaching the end of its cycle. And the day that the advent calendar finally hit 24 was a day of crackling energy and anticipation. Christmas was finally here. Well, this is a picture, the exact picture of what Jude is saying here in the text. There is a glorious day somewhere off in the distance whose date is fixed by God. And on this day, God will reveal himself through Jesus Christ. And it will be a truly awesome day. And when I say awesome, I mean in the old school definition of awesome, which includes unspeakable beauty and shattering terror. All mixed up together. It will be a day when Jesus' mercy will fall on his people. And they will escape the terror bit and experience the beauty bit forever. But that day is still just a glimmering promise for us. Just like Christmas is but a glimmering promise on the day that we unbox the Advent calendar. So like an eager kid waiting for Christmas through the slow and agonizing grind of December, we too must believe in God's promises and eagerly await the coming through all the slow, agonizing grind of the passing years and decades of life. To give up on God's promises partway in would be as absurd as a child who thinks that Christmas will definitely never actually arrive. And so this child packs up all the baubles and the wreaths and the tinsel and puts them back firmly in the cupboard and instead goes and turns on the telly and starts watching reruns of I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here without another thought of Christmas again. The tragedy is Christmas will still come but that child will miss it in favor of something comparably pointless. But for the person who does cling to God's promises, that person clearly keeps in the love of God. And there's one thing to note about this love of God. And it's this. We are already deeply loved and kept by God. In verse 1, Jude sets the stage for our entire discussion in this book by reminding his readers that they are God's beloved, his deeply loved people, and that they are being kept in and by Jesus. Prior to all of our activities that we just discussed to keep in the love of God, God has already deeply loved us, and Jesus is already keeping us. And as we just saw, it is the Spirit who guides and initiates the very prayers that deepen our love for God. The activity of the triune God comes long before any of the actions that we do. In verse 1, if verse 1 wasn't enough encouragement already, three more times in verses 3, 17, and 20, Jude reminds his readers that they are God's beloved children. It's only after this fourth reminder that he encourages his readers to stay in the love of God. And it is this deep love of God that adds such deep emotional power when viewed in light of 
the rebel, rebels and the false teachers that have perverted God's love and grace. So we've just answered the first of our questions. How do we keep ourselves from drifting into false teaching? We do it by keeping in the love of God. Now, Jude moves on to our second question. What are we to do with those who are drifting away or running away from the genuine biblical faith? And it is no accident that this question comes second in Jude's writing. It is only once we have built on that perfect and beautiful foundation of Christ's teaching that we, and that we are being kept in his love that we can adequately face the second question. So, Jude identifies three different categories of those who are caught in false teaching. Yes, there's lots and lots of threes in Jude. Not sure if he had triplets or something, but you know, he seems to enjoy threes. Um, so here we go. Here's three more. The first type of Christian is the one who has doubts. This person is being influenced by the false teacher and has become unsure what the truth is. This person has not left the fold yet, but they have lots of questions and are divided in their thinking. (coughs) These are people who might be reading a popular Christian book by an author who is subtly smuggling in ideas that are not biblical. Or maybe this person is listening to the Christian radio and is absorbing the theology of some outwardly Christian songs, but who haven't quite got the truth right. Or maybe these people are scrolling through Facebook and reading all the posts by friends, and those posts have ostensibly Christian messages, but again, they're starting to shift away from the truth. The second type of Christian is the one who is playing with fire, Jude says. This person is fully, almost fully ensnared by the false teaching. They're right on the brink of falling headlong into that error. On a really big, obvious example, this would include Christians who continue to invite Mormons or Jehovah's Witness missionaries over to their house to study the Bible. I've known some of these Christians who are so impressed with the, the Mormon family ethic that they began to meet with them just to see about whether or not they could glean some parenting techniques or something like that. But after months and months of this routine, this Christian person began to doubt their own faith. And they began to move more and more and more towards a Mormon interpretation. But on a less obvious level, those who are playing with fire, they have a veil... (coughs) Sorry. They have this availability of all sorts of spiritual content. And this Christian might be digesting books or sermons or podcasts or blog posts or TV shows or social media feeds of a Christian teacher who has already left the fold. Maybe an attachment was formed with this particular teacher of the, of, of the Bible when the person wasn't particularly out there. Maybe they were sort of teaching and preaching biblical truth and person got hooked. But as that person drifted right out of the stratosphere, that attachment to that teacher remained. Maybe that this Christian doesn't realize that the teacher has drifted or not. I don't know. But that's another way that you can start to play with fire. Whatever it is that's causing these Christians to play with this false doctrine, they're in burning danger. The final type of Christian 
is the one who has become fully entrenched in the false teaching or includes the false teachers themselves. These people have either left the church to join with the false teacher or they have stayed in their home church to begin to smuggle in the false teaching into that church. Caution and care is required with this third type of person so as not to become enslaved and indoctrinated by those same ideas. In fact, Jude says it like, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh in verse 23. So what do we do with these three types of Christian? Well, Jude calls for mercy. The very same mercy that we ourselves are waiting for from our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 20. Mercy, put simply, is not getting what we rightly deserve. Towards these people, we are not to become jihadists or crusaders, but to act out of love for our fallen or falling brothers and sisters. We must extend them mercy and act for their good. In Bible study a few weeks ago, we talked about gentleness. This is a place where gentleness needs to come back in. For the doubter, we are to speak mercifully and gently with regards to the struggles they are dealing with. For the person playing with fire, we are to mercifully work in such a way as to snatch them right out of that fire. And for the fully entrenched person, we are again to show mercy, but with great caution and care so as not to fall into that sin ourselves. A few weeks ago, out in the wild west of Perth, a Christian brother spent two hours hiding behind a curtain at a stage. This curtain was at a businessman's breakfast, and he spent that two hours holding a lemon meringue pie in his hand. In an attempt to correct a false teaching, this Christian brother walked up on stage and splatted that pie right into the speaker's face in front of 500 people. Now, admittedly, this speaker wasn't a Christian, but that makes it even worse since this person needs our love and, our, and the grace of Christ to lead to re- tears of repentance, not lemon juice leading to tears of pain. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, we who love Jesus do not sput pies into the faces of people who have teaching error. This is not love and it is not mercy. It's a bit funny. You can look it up on YouTube if you want. Actually, not funny. I... <clears throat> the final way that we are to contend for the faith is to keep our eyes fixed firmly on Jesus and his promised eternity. These last couple of verses are meant to keep us all on the right track. Jude promises us that Jesus is able to keep us falling, from falling into error and sin. What a great and marvelous promise. And even better, Jesus will carry us all the way into his joyous presence. So there is no room for despair or fear. We must use discernment true, but Christ will keep us. And that is a very big promise. And to close, Jude wants us to just dwell on his last little prayer here and to stand in wonder and awe of our Lord And so, let's finish by rereading these last couple of verses and stand in worship and awe. 
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this text in Jude. We thank you that you inspired Jude to write a warning 